Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Octavia's Parable podcast. Octavia's Parables. All of the parables are included here. Um, <laughs> I am Adrian Marie Brown, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Toshi Regan. And we are here this week with chapter 13. Um, and up top, just an announcement. The Huntington Library, where Octavia E. Butler's archive or material is all located, has established a one-year fellowship for the study of her work. She's the first science fiction writer to receive a MacArthur Genius Award and the first black woman to win widespread recognition writing in that genre. And um, I am really grateful because about 3 billion people sent it to me just to make sure they were like, I know you saw this, but I just want to make sure you saw this. And it's been such a beautiful, sad experience because every time I open it, like, yes. And then it's like PhD. And I'm like, all right, I don't, I don't have a PhD, but one of you out there (laughs) does have a PhD. And so someone out there, this is for you. Please go get this fellowship and then let it serve the whole. Um, Yeah. But yeah, very excited about that. (laughs) Any announcements from you? No, I just am waiting for the Huntington You a Badass Fellowship to study Octavia. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, we need to get like a, maybe just because you were in love with Octavia for so long, that counts as a PhD. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, I have a high school diploma, so you know what I'm saying? Like, Same. Same. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that we're both in that. I don't have, I went to Columbia, but I didn't get a degree because I failed French and... Some other things were going on. Get that degree. Was that the only reason? (laughs) Well, it's like I failed French, but I also felt so overextended by the experience. Like I won the most outstanding student award and I was taking like seven classes, running like four organizations, doing all these things. And it just felt so petty to me. (laughs) I tried. I busted (laughs) my butt for that French class. And so something about it was just too petty. I was like, you know what? It's all good. Like, if 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 y'all can't see it for me, <laughs> you know, if you can't see it for me, it's all good. And I've never needed it. So I've never had a moment where I was like, ooh, you know, stuff like this is the only time where I'm like, oh, I guess it would be nice. But it's not just that degree. It would have been like six more years of my life. Of it, right. This is always also always a thing that's so interesting to me about the academy versus what I do, which I think of as independent scholarship, which is like, Mm -hmm. I have done deep scholarship. I have written books about the work I've, you know, and, uh, and so just understanding like, yeah, there's some things that are specifically held for the Academy and it's a different kind of scholarship, but I, I do hope and maybe vision for a future in which whenever there's these announcements, they have one for those in academia and one for those who are doing independent scholarship or something like that. Because yes, I, I do, be I think, especially when it comes to these non-traditional fields, there's just so many people um, like myself That's who right. are in deep study of different things outside the ivory towers. So, yeah, so anyway, scholars ain't got no degrees. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're my favorite scholar, Toshi. So, Aww. um, <laughs> 
I swoon. Oh, can I also tell you, just jumping into this, that today my tarot card that I pulled was the three of earth, the three of material. And the description for it is all about radical, beautiful collaboration with trustworthy people Mm. that you love working with and that you can just surrender to what they know and they surrender to what you know. And anyway, it was just such a like, (gasps) Toshi time is coming. (laughs) (laughs) Adrian time is coming. It feels very good. Um, I'm really happy. I'm happy we have this podcast. I'm happy that we have each other and that we, we get to you know, sit around the fire and talk about Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sowers yes. and it's a such a, yeah, it's such a blessing for real, for real. So we're in chapter 13. We, um, Lauren's father has gone missing and they've started memorializing him. And can you drop us into the earth seed and start telling us what's what's happening here in December of 2026. Yes, there is no end to what a living world will demand of you. Earthseed, the books of the living, Saturday, December 19th, 2026. And yo, that's so on time. <laughs> Everybody has it's... got to be feeling like that right now. <laughs> I feel like we all need that tattooed on our foreheads. Just like, how are you? Yeah. There is no end to what a living world will <laughs> <laughs> like that's how I am. <laughs> oh my god. Um I'm so glad she wrote that down because that that is a mm. feeling to have and to walk around with. And this chapter is um this is I probably will say this, but this is one of my favorite chapters. It's it's you know, everything is the before, but this is the 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 big before before. And um yes. so you're right, you know, Reverend Alamina is still missing and so the community kind of declares him dead. And um, the Reverend Matthew Robinson, um, who had the last remaining church, the church that Lauren and her brother were baptized in, he comes to preach the funeral. Um, Lauren is so specific about everything. So when Mm. they say, when the Reverend um, Robinson says, you know, Reverend Alamina was alive, he'd be here. Um, Lauren's like, no, he, he could have been kidnapped. This could have happened to him. Like there's a lot of ways he could still be alive and not able to get home. Um, so, uh, she really makes a connection around the death, um, that happens in the community and what happens when people leave. Uh, she connects to when Tracy vanished and thought about, you know, how that affected her family. Um, also KSF. Corporation shows up to pick up the Garfields who are All going right. to Olivar. Yes. yes. And it is such a big deal. Don't let your baby go. Don't let your baby go to Oliver. Don't let your baby go. Don't let your baby go to Oliver. It's a company town for. It's the first time that there's um, been a truck inside of the community. Many of the kids had never seen a truck before. Um, they are like running around like crazy, like, oh my God, cause it's a big shiny truck. And it has these uh, two KSF employees who Lauren describes looking more like cops cause of how much, uh, how many weapons they have on them. Yeah. Um, there's a black one mm. and there's a white one. And Corey feels really kind of some kind of assurance by seeing a uh, black and white 
employees of KSF together and um, is, is chatting up the black one and like, yo, what's up? Can we get up in here? And, um, and Lauren <laughs> is just like not about that KSF life at all. Um, uh-uh. And this, the other, there's, there's two more kind of really, there's a, a, a beautiful things and hard things. One is Curtis and uh, Lauren really have like the deepest conversation about their relationship that we've we've um had in the book um curtis is her boyfriend and out of the the stress and hurt of the funeral she and the missing of her dad and and her own kind of realization that her father's probably dead um she runs to curtis and they have a big conversation about getting married and about the future and about leaving roblado which they both want to um and then there is a uh, a big fire. Oh well, wait a second. It also feels important to say that they have sex because they do I have think sex. of that. They have sex. Well, because I always this tracking sex in Octavia's work is always really important to me. Tracking how the sex is approached, and particularly like with Lauren, you know, in this big conversation they're having, Curtis is like we need to make plans together and we're having sex. You're my lover. We're going to make this plan. We're going to leave here together. And she's Mm -hmm. just like, I just needed some release. I needed it. (laughs) Um, And I am making plans to leave here, but not necessarily with you. And that feels very important. Like how she's holding their intimacy is very different from how he's holding it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) She even, she even says, yeah, she even says, I want to marry you. You know, and kind of doesn't really know how that can happen. You know, like she's yes. like, I can have these feelings. Like, I don't even know where it comes from. But yes. I also can't even see how that can exist. And yes, we're here having sex. And yes, I dragged you into this room because I needed to. Um, exactly. So, and like as much yeah. intimacy as they have, she has not told him about her hyper empathy. So it's like they have intimacy, but the thing that is actually the most vulnerable about her, he doesn't know. And he doesn't know about Earthseed. She hasn't, she hasn't, in fact, the first person she tried to share with was Joanne. So, um, you know, her best friend, who she has to say goodbye to um, in this chapter. And it's a a lot of tears here. Um, Mm. And, and I think... um, one of the other things that I really love about Lauren and Curtis in this chapter is how Lauren really is like um, concerned for her family, thinking about like when is the right time to leave, um, was thinking about, oh, I'm going to leave when I'm 18. And he is like, you know, but where are you going? And what's the da-da? And she's just like, you know, um, I'm going to go alone. And he's like, why alone? And she just has this feeling like she could get killed as soon as she left. Um, She says, I could starve. The cops could pick me up. Dogs could get me. I could catch a disease. Anything could happen to me. I've thought about it. I haven't named half the bad possibilities. And Curtis is like, that's why you need help. And she's like, that's why I couldn't ask anyone else. So she is (laughs) she is such a deep thinker of her steps yeah. it's it's she goes yeah. there she doesn't she doesn't let what is real and in front of her um stop her from thinking the steps through which 
I, I would love for all of us to have a practice of in this right now time because there's yeah. so many hard things going on and sometimes it is very hard to look at them and not just look at them, but actually step them forward. You know, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this yeah. could happen. And and be in that realness, which doesn't mean it will happen, but it means you're like, right? Right, you're yes. plotting, you're, and I, you're responding. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I really also love that she... She has an assessment of Curtis, right? Like she's like looking and planning and trying to figure all this stuff out. But she also has an assessment of him that's like, I already know you. Like I know that you haven't been Mm -hmm. preparing. I know this isn't your instinct. I know you. And that always strikes me so powerfully that we do walk around with these assessments of the people around us and their capacity to respond to crisis, whether we articulate it or not. And they come out of us under the pressure of grief, right? Oh, that person's not going to be able to handle going down to the funeral home. That person's not going to be able to handle identifying the body. That person's not going to be able to handle navigating all the guests that are going to come or whatever it is. These different assessments come out. And I love that this is, I'm always um, studying what Octavia does without making it plain. So she makes things Mm -hmm. so plain, but she's also subtly showing us so much that's in the, observation and it's moving through Lauren's mind here and this is one of those things where like rather than being like oh I could train you or yeah you could be of use I could right she's just like oh no you don't have the instinct for survival that would roll with me (laughs) (laughs) so that's it's all good that you feel that way isn't it funny too like sometimes when you have I don't know if this has happened to you before but when you have a lover they're like in such a particular category, like you've done that, like they haven't done that, you've done that. You're like, this is my lover. And then if they come into certain parts of your world, all of a sudden you're like, I don't need a lover here. Like I, I, why are you this here? Is not and you like completely a lover. <laughs> yeah, this is not the, the and, it, and then, you know, sometimes you can have a badass lover who actually is a shape shifter. And so they know how to, yeah. you know, right. step into another world have the love and um but understand like that relationship is not what's going to be happening or is 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 not useful right now and then you know you can shape back right but i just that's well, happened to me in my life sometimes i think that's happened to me too i love the distinction of it too that's like some lovers are for the loving for the sex for the intimacy for the closeness and some are something else or can become something else. And yes. I think there's such a distinction um, of, oh, the lover versus the comrade. And mm-hmm. if you can be both. Um, or the lover versus the friend, you know. And the fact that, like, the friend is who she wanted to tell first about, right. you know, here's my whole belief system. And the lover is not someone I'm telling that to necessarily. Um, so yeah, all of it is really interesting. Um, so then what happens around Christmas, Christmas Eve? Can you keep us? Yes, it's rough. There's a big fire and, um, the fire is really a distraction. Um, Uh the fire is a distraction for a, a like well planned kind of crazy robbery of everybody. So they hit 
all of the houses as as the community has their fire you know putting out fire practice which is everybody participates in that and they try to save the um Payne parish house um yeah. which these are the relatives of mrs sims and they try to save her house and while they do that um they get attacked uh by the uh the pyros <laughs> basically and they get they just go through everything um they steal a lot of stuff from alamina's house um they still store store-bought food from the community they steal Corey's sewing machine um they're very very uh very very lucky that you know they didn't get to um the alamina's guns and money because they have this like you know really yep. You know, you have to do a lot to get through that, but they they just devastate the community. Um, yeah, and it is it is another one of those you know signs that the that they are discovered that there's that not just as a walled in community, but that that people are like, no, these people have stuff and they have a lot of stuff and they they are functional and the pyros are 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 bananas and she says. The most popular name is pyro, short for pyromania. It's all the same drug. It's all been around for a while. From what Keith said, it's becoming more popular. It makes watching the leaping, changing patterns of fire a better, more intense, longer lasting high than sex. Like Parasecto, my biological mother's drug of choice, pyro screws around with people's neurochemistry, but Parasecto began as a legitimate drug uh, intended to help victims of Alzheimer's disease. Pyro was an accident. It was a homebrew, a basement drug invented by someone who was trying to assemble one of the other higher-priced street drugs. So, I, you know, Octavia don't miss anything like uh-uh. that she that she was like they're trying to cure something else maybe i'm not sure but they're like hmm alzheimer's let's see what we can do with this that yeah. students start taking this drug so that their their brains can expand so they can you know finish their schoolwork that mm-hmm. that then leads to Lawrence hyper empathy um syndrome and as somebody's in the basement trying to be like what can i make that I could charge a lot of money for, and that can make people mm-hmm. high and crazy. Like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. It made me think of crystal meth, you know, right away. So I'm just like, yes, we're yeah. just what is being crafted on the edges, on the margins, by people who are desperate for some relief. Yeah, and um, and we're dealing with all of these these issues today, but I think. Um, if we could tie it a little bit to this current moment, one of the things I noticed when I did my, like, you know, what comes next or my little plotting exercise this morning is um, the uh, Republican convention is happening this week. And the yeah. I, the entire Republican Party, like, I just want to know what that meeting was like when they were like, I'm sure it was Mitch, when Mitch said, Listen, we're going to do this convention. Everybody's going to be behind Trump 100%. We're not going to even offer a platform. It's just going to be Trump. Like all of those people, all of those people in that entire 
party agreed is that he's just going to talk every night and then there's going to be some of his family members and what they're going to talk about is black people black people and black people's power and the fear of black people as a way to weaponize their entire party towards like what I am sure is a massively destructive confrontation. Basically, the Republicans have got us set up on fascism, <laughs> like hardcore. Yeah. Like every, yeah. everybody, like everybody agreed. Like everybody was like, you know, that Zoom session must have been fire. Like everybody agreed. No, and it's and so- shocking. It's shocking because this is, I woke up yesterday morning with a just, you know, sometimes I wake up with a thought kind of clanging in my mind very loudly. And it was just like, people are still having a conversation as if we're discussing parties, policies, politics, Mm -hmm. or even personalities at this moment. And it's, that's just not what's happening right now. And so people are like, Oh, you know, are these the compelling policies? Are the, I was like, we are talking about a dictator, a white nationalist dictator who already has a coup over this country and who is trying to maintain that coup. This is the only option we have of, you know, possibly being able to reclaim this as a nation. It's it's a yeah. different kind of conversation. And I think this convention, yeah. in quotations, that convention is is really showing that. And I just keep having that feeling of why are we participating in this farce? Like, why yeah. are we all participating in this farce? It's stop, stop. You know, even. people acting stop. like, oh, you should, def- you should debate with this dictator. Well, I don't understand. You know how you do. De- anyway, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so well, this is the time. I don't know in. what the. Yeah, I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. I mean, it's ridiculous that they, you know, don't just jump to the place they need to jump to. But I don't have faith in that. But I have faith in us, and I have I faith, have faith in. Us. in I have faith in us and, you know, I'm hopeful that us good people will understand that, you know, this is an era of, of, of basically taking away, um, the, the, what I call like what we should all have, you know, shelter, water, food, you know, um, jobs, participation in society. So it has been an era of, of consistently taking away from the people who are, people who are already in vulnerable positions or people who are like living fine at like, you know, not having a lot of wealth, but actually getting up in the morning, going to work, coming home, feeding their kids, like putting their kids in a system of learning and having opportunities. Like um, they are, they are, they have participated in like poisoning of water. They have participated in poisoning of air. They have participated in the defunding of schools and education. They've they've participated in all of these these ways, um, you know, rolling back environmental protections, everything you can imagine that mm. would destabilize humans. They have done, and my faith in us is that we will. When we talk about like defund the police, I I want us to break up with some of our old ideas about you know government and governing and structures of living like just break up with them and and get and see that you know we are going to all have to put our our hands together and around each other and with each other um in a really really strong way 
if we yeah. want to see some mending happen. Um, and especially a big concern is the evictions. I don't know if you've ever wondered, but I always have wondered reading this book, how do so many people just end up on the streets? Like, how do they just have yes. nothing to do? And especially in 2019, I was just like, I mean, I know that we have very large homeless um, populations in the United States, which is unacceptable. But how does it get to the level it gets to in parable? And now I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this is what this is, is about to happen. This is what this is, is about to happen. Yeah. And we all yeah, need to, in our right now places, fight, fight, <laughs> strategize, you know, and stay yeah. together. And stay together that. and recognize that, you know, this is that thing where it's like the water is slowly boiling and yeah. we don't realize that we are the meal. And that it's like, oh, each of these things is designed to increase the temperature, the pressure, the chaos, the confusion, the inescapability, in in right? This sense of like, we're not, there's no other way than just moving forward in the way we are. And I think that's, we're in that precipice absolutely right now where half the people are just like, how am I going to stay in a home? And half the people are like, oh, how am I going to educate my kids this fall? And like, you know, mm -hmm. there's just, there's each, each of us has different front lines of crisis to attend to. And I think one of the things that is clear in this book is when the gap opens up so wide between those who have basic needs met and those who don't have those needs met, um, then it becomes as if we were two different people or different species, you know? Mm -hmm. So when, when Lauren goes outside, it's like, what she sees out there feels unimaginable to her. And right. when those folks are looking in, it's like what 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 y'all have, it's unimaginable that y'all would have that and we wouldn't take it. We wouldn't we need whatever you have. And so I think that we see that happening now too, where there's a yes. this opening gap of like we can't fully imagine each other's realities. Um and we're receiving different sources of news, different sources of information. We're all looking to different things as the source of truth. And yes. and then inside that, I love that they're also still trying to figure out how to teach each other. And, you know, yeah. like, you know, what is what are the jobs that are necessary to be doing inside of this as everything falls apart around them? How do we hold on to maintain some systems of normalcy? Yeah. I mean, and that's a, you know, kind of a wonderful gift of, of humans that they are like, mm. we're, we're supposed to be like this. So we're going to, we're going to try to maintain it through, through anything. And I think as it, this chapter really also, it really shows you just, you know, this, how, how all of the things could have been in, in um, action for a very long time. But then all of a sudden, there's just incredible collaboration um, of mm -hmm. energy. And I think we're inside that, like, you know, I've talked to some astrologers and they keep talking about, like, what this time is is going to be like on the planet and how that we're not separate from the universe. And so that that all of this energetic um, force is meeting our very human, you know, existence and the way that we are. 
Now we could oh. be, we could have been different, like, right? We don't have to have been like the, <laughs> in this particular situation where we're literally fighting, you know, fascism in many places on the earth. And, um, but because that is what, where we are, then we are being affected in a really particular way by something that would have happened no matter what. And so that, mm. that, um, you know, so an example is today, you both of us were saying, we kind of stumbling through the day, like all of these like pop up, you know, kind of issues yes. and emergencies and, and, you know, like, and they're, and they're, each one is not even like a big thing. It just was an accumulation um, you know, phone ringing, something dropping in the back, something happening over here, something happening over there. And all of a sudden yes. your, your brain starts to be like, I don't know how I can be steady in this right now moment, except for I am doing this podcast. Okay. I know I'm supposed to do that. I'm going to do that. And <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I this think for we'll all do. of us, our, our whole communal existence of humanity, of humans, of people on the planet our our ability to actually witness see a name and react to what is actually happening is the saving grace it is the saving grace you don't have to wait for somebody to tell you you can actually yeah. do it yourself um That's and that right. is the that is the saving grace that is the that is the practice and to refuse like refuse to take certain opportunities to be destructive when you know you don't have to. Like some people have to do what they can, but all of us do not. And the ones of us who do not have to hold the other ones who who don't have an opportunity. Um, Mm. In this chapter, there's there's like, you know, the the flight is starting to happen from the community. Um, This this really functional space is people are like, okay, it's we got to get out. It's not going to work. And so you see the Garfields leave and, you know, Reverend Alamina's leaving started with him already starting to not stay in the community too much. Yeah. Um, you know, they're starting, people are really starting to think about that. And that made me think about New York and like, you know, one of my friends uh, is in real estate and she said she's never been busier. Um, she's like, yeah, I would think it would be the opposite. And she's like, no, people are moving like bananas. And she said that, um, people are moving and I'll ask her if I can name her, maybe we'll put her, put her in the notes. But she was saying that, um, people who were in certain spaces where they didn't like have rooms, like they were maybe in a loft. And so this were like, they were like, no, we need two separate rooms. <laughs> people in yes, smaller honey. places moving to bigger places. Um, people mm-hmm. who like own own an apartment, renting a house outside of the city because they don't want to be in the city. People buying yes. places sight unseen, just getting property outside <laughs> of the city. Yes. Like people are like running for the hills. And it's, you know, not that, that you can necessarily go somewhere but the feeling that you got out, you distance yourself from a place where you think the crisis, whatever the crisis may be, is more intense is really interesting. Absolutely. I think that's, I mean, it's also part of the the nature of capitalism <laughs> is, oh, you know, we destroyed this place. Let's move on. You know, there's that kind of swarming, dispersing um, movements of privilege, 
right? The waves of privilege mm-hmm. of like, I don't have to stay in this horrific situation. I'm going to catch the wave and go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, but I also think there's something about people, this period unveiling for people what they really need, you know, that's like, mm-hmm. oh, I was getting by and I've been getting by in these conditions, but actually what I really need is this other yes. condition. I really do need an additional room. I do need a backyard. I need some space to be in nature. I really do need um, more yeah. quiet. And, you know, I think this is one of the things that is always fascinating is when people are working, producing, 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 constantly grinding, it's very hard to stay in touch with what you actually need. And it's very mm. easy and common to fall into practices of self-denial and self-negation. Um, to just be like, oh, I'm just, I'll just make it work. I'm in here. I'm only, you know, I just sleep here and then I'm out and doing this and that and the other thing. And it's like, oh, actually when I'm not nonstop grinding, I can realize that I do need to be able to stretch out. I do need to be able to constantly learn. I do need, I need other things. And in this chapter, um, I think there's something that emerges, which is like, what does the community actually need? And I love that there's that like, oh, we need a preaching. We need teachers. Like we need these, we need jobs. We need work to do. We, adaptation is, is work. There's labor of adaptation. So we need to do that work. And in, inside of all that, Lauren Olamina is thinking about what does it mean to be the only survivor? You know, she looks at Wendell Mm. Parrish, who's the only survivor. And Mm -hmm. she starts thinking that, which I think is really good foreshadowing for where we're heading with this book. It's like, what does it yes. mean to be the only survivor or the only one who thinks like you? Um, are we ready for questions? Let's do these questions. Let's do these questions. So the first, the first questions I have are kind of a bundle. And the, it's, it's what are the different ways that grief shows up? in times of crisis. So, Mm. you know, there's grief when it's like, everything's normal. We have time to cry. We have time to orient around it. But in these times of crisis with the additional pressure of survival, of fear of other things, what does grief look like? And grief and desire as it gets tied together here that she's, you know, that we don't hear from Lauren Alamina a lot about how she feels in all of this, but her right. body does need the comfort of lovemaking with her boyfriend. And I think that that is worth noting. And it's a question for the listeners of what is your relationship between grief and desire or grief and other comforts? And then the last piece of that is how do we navigate intimacy in apocalyptic conditions? So for some people, I do think like Lauren, it becomes, it's just a biological need. I just got to bust a nut, get my rocks off, whatever it is, that's fine. (laughs) And then I think for other people, maybe it falls away completely. Like I'm just trying to survive. I can't even think about that right now. Or, you know, in our current condition, I keep hearing from people who are like, it's just been so long since I was able to touch another person. I can't imagine how I would find someone available who would meet the standards I need to hold, whatever. And so it just become, you know, it's like either deep practices of self-love or a deep practice of self-containment, almost like turning that part off. And again, I think it's all, to me, it feels very connected. You know, it's like these are the mechanisms of the body 
to deal with loss, to deal with connection, to deal with loss, to deal with connection. Grieving is how do we let go of what we have been connected to and loved and intimacy is how do we bring Mm -hmm. close something else that we ultimately will lose. And I always think about, you know, I mean, I've got a Scorpio moon, so maybe that's it. But I always think about this, like when I take a new lover, like I'm going to have to let this person go or they're going to have to let me go. You know, like if I fall in love, like one of us is going to have to grieve the other or we're going to have to break each other's hearts. <laughs> you know, like there's grief. You think grief about it is right implicit. at the beginning? In the beginning, it's just like, oh, like I, I, I think as I get older, there's a part of me that's like, I know how I love. I know how I desire. Mm-hmm. And... So it's, is it worth what it's going to feel like to have to let go of this on the other side? Mm. You know, I think about that, right? So it's not just like, ooh, titillation. I'm like, hold on. Are you worth grieving for me? Because <laughs> I, I, I love so hard. Yes. I grieve. Yeah. Yes. So, but in this instance, yeah, I think these are questions that I want our, our listeners to consider is, you know, do you turn towards the body or away towards other bodies or away? Mm. Um, does grief make you tuck inward or reach out for support. Um, how is that for you, Toshi? What do you do under grief? You know, I kind of walk around with it like a little bit of a backpack. You know, it's just like I'm carrying uh-huh. it around. It's not a, it's not bad to me. Um, I'm kind of welcome it if, I, if mm-hmm. it's real, you know. I kind of welcome it because especially if I, if I have to keep moving, and in, in the, this story, everybody has to keep moving. But um, I wrote this song um, called Yes It Was um, when my dad died. And I was mm. not particularly close to my dad like on an everyday basis, um, but on an energetic basis of like kind of who he was. I, I, like I have my best relationship with him after he's dead. And you know, that can be another mm. conversation. <laughs> but um, but I, wrote the, I wrote this song and um, and at the same time, my friend Morley was very good friends with the singer um, Jeff Buckley, was one of her oh, friends, yes. and we were having and he and he had just he had just died, and so uh-huh. we were having a conversation, and I wrote the song. Yes, it was. Was it all for the army of love? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Was it all for the army of love? Yes, it was. My father was a very big civil rights activist and um, really important and an incredible singer with the Freedom Singers. He was just a really incredible spirit, kind of, you know, up to 21 or 22. He he really spent his currency and then the rest of the rest of his journey, I think, was uh, complicated in terms of like healing old, old significant wounds and then also finding like... Um, when you've been a general in an army, like then mm. you start to go into other places of life where they like the adrenaline is, is different, everything is different. I don't he just did not he just did not, you know, he didn't he didn't do well with that. Um, mm. and I wrote the song for for him and then my mom heard the song and my mom recorded the song with Sweet Honey and the Rock. Um, so y'all could actually hear two versions of this song. Maybe we'll put some links and my mom's, my mom said to me, uh, and my, my mom and dad, 
been separated since I was like two. So it's not, uh -huh, uh -huh. but he's, um, but he's always been an important connector to her and her, her, her work in the movement. And so she said it's the only song that, and the only words that kind of touched her grieving and mm. gave access to it. And, um, mm. and then she has a song called They Are Falling All Around Me. And actually, in the notes for Parable, when we were, were, were working on it, I wrote, They Are Falling All Around Me, and I wondered if it would be in, even in the opera. But her song, again, it is like a place to actually really touch grief and really yes. be inside of it. So I think I have, I have that practice and that I'm not supposed to avoid it. And if I can, I can take some, some, some air, but even if, if I can't, which is inside this story, nobody has time to stop. Um, but I, I don't have to walk around like it's not there, you know? Exactly, yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for that yeah. sharing. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I think it's so important that people figure out practices and reflect on them before the time comes. Um, yeah. I'm like, the time is definitely going to come. And right now, um, whenever we have such high numbers of people dying at the same time, it means we also have higher numbers of people grieving at the same time. And so it's like this global moment where we have more intimate grief per capita, right? Than, yeah. um, than Ooh. we're used to, or than we've had really in my lifetime. This is the most people around the whole world, you know, where it's like, oh, it's not all concentrated in one place that's responding to one natural disaster yeah. or something, or one war even contained in one area. But this has gone all the way around the world to touch everyone, this virus, this moment. And it feels like it, that's, it feels so parables to me that I'm like, there's no escape. There's no wall. There's no safe place. Like you can be safer. You can try to yeah. control the environment, but you're going to have to grieve. Um, yes. Yeah. So. Yes. And I think I, I just one more thing. Just I, mm -hmm. I think that what what we're also experiencing is that there is a lot of leadership that doesn't have. Um, that doesn't include grieving um, inside of like the calculations of response. And yeah. we see that. Mm. And I know some of our listeners work um, in a, a lot of places where they witness um, a lot of death or a lot of hardship and their systems don't acknowledge that. And so they're just kind of repeatedly right. being put into service without the without the breaks and without the, and I, I really think about people, especially in New York, the, the big wave that we had, people were working in hospitals and, uh, you know, all kinds of health practitioners of all kinds, um, completely overwhelmed. And, and, you know, people were just saying like, you know, I, I don't know if I'll be doing this job after this anymore. Like a lot of really triggering. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that like our, what we are witnessing at the same time, since so many people take signals from um, leadership, even if they don't like them, you know, you just kind of right. do. Like people are still like, why isn't Trump blah, 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 blah. I'm like, he's never done it. Like, why are you still looking over there? But yeah. that point where, you know, Obama, <laughs> Obama was able to go to the funeral 
um, when, you know, those beautiful people um, were murdered in the uh -huh. church, at the AME church. Mm -hmm. And Obama cried and Obama sang Amazing Grace. And it was like, this is a level, like actually something happened. And I think we are just not, you know, the country is not, a country is actually seeing uh, ignore, like, what did he say? It is yeah. what it is. And that is so incredibly painful um, yes. to disregard that all of these people, almost 200,000 people in the United States alone, um, not to mention the, you know, what is it, 600,000 people who are have COVID, yes. um, all of the families, all of the things, and then the grieving that's about like losing school systems and blah, 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 every on and on. So right. people- Not again, to mention California. You know, so oh my God. I'm like, if you, if you, you know, it just keeps me like, oh, and here's another layer of, uh, you know, as we're recording this, many, many people, our loved ones are being evacuated and displaced by wildfires um, started by lightning storms all over California. Yeah. And so on top of already having been in the conditions of coronavirus, now they've had to give up home. People are losing yes. their homes for good forever. Others are just having to be displaced to some other, you know, it's just, it's like an additional pressure, an additional change, yeah. an additional change. And that's where it's it's hard not to take it personally. You know, it's like, okay, God has changed. God is this force of change. Um, but then I do think there's that, like, what do you do if you feel accursed by the times and, how do you, and I, I think this chapter to me is so good at that, like, oh, we'll just keep going one foot in front of the other. Like there's, it, it's almost like it would be too much to really stop and feel. And mm. um, I think it's, it is so important to be like, actually having leaders who say stop and feel, having leaders who say yep. feel as you keep going or make space yes. for others to feel as you hold space. You know, if you are a teacher, you're going to have to hold space for your students to grieve the loss of all normalcy and maybe the loss of family members and the loss of their own health. <laughs> you know, if, how do you how do you lead in a way that creates space for people to be in their whole humanity? And um, so without right. without leading in a way that um, encourages people to stagnate in their pain. And I think that is mm -hmm. a very important distinction that there is, there is an appropriate, there's a need for, right? I think, I think it is appropriate to take space, to take time, to give people time, to give ourselves time to grieve. And I think one of the, one of the ways that power tries to hold us is by giving us so much and overwhelming us until we can't move forward. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies is The Never Ending Story. And I always think about how they've got to move against the nothingness and that the nothingness makes you want to stagnate and just sink and give in and give up. And what I feel in this chapter is that fight, that struggle, the overwhelming circumstances and grief and loss and attack and fire and the weight of it all. And then these small moves of like, well, we're going to teach the next class. Someone's going to preach the next sermon we're going to continue to operate as a community here. Like these small ways that we throw a hook forward and pull ourselves through time. And yes. Yeah. So 
another question I have inside of that because of the Olivar, you know, the the idea of these company towns or these places that seem to offer respite and rescue that we know are really prison-like, you know, that it costs extra to call Olivar is one of the clues we get in this chapter that it's like, these folks are inside of a container they cannot leave and they can't easily communicate out of. And it's a trap, but it looks, it's an appealing trap. It's a trap that looks like a mirage. So one of the questions I have is what are our modern day traps? What are the modern day Olivar constructs? Um, things that are are prisonish, prison-like, carceral in their nature, but with the dusting of freedom or improvement or just a safer place, right? A gated community. What you know? What are the ways in which people think mm-hmm. that they are purchasing more safety, but the exchange is freedom? Um, mm-hmm. So I want to know if if you have those in your neighborhood in your community. I want to know what are the necessary roles in a community that you want to be a part of? Um, Teachers, Mm. preachers, farmers, you know, people who know how to fix things, facilitators, doulas, chefs, you know. (laughs) So (laughs) it's I think this is a really beautiful thing to dream up is what are all those necessary roles in a community that you actually would feel held by what feels essential to you? And we have this moment of like, these are the essential workers. And it's really interesting to see who's considered essential and not, and who's essential to whom and so on. And I do think it's one to talk about is as you're imagining, idealizing, envisioning, and setting towards intentional communities, what are the roles that are necessary? And then my last question is, what are the basic conditions that you would be open and willing and and inspired to survive inside of. And I asked that question tied to this other one, which is, would you want to continue if you were alone? And I think that Octavia asks us this question in multiple of her works. If you were Mm -hmm. the only one who had this knowledge or who had this vision, if you were all by yourself with your, your supplies, but no one else to talk to, to share it with, if you were all alone, of your family, if you were the only one who survived, or of your species, would you still want to survive? And in that, I think she's always asking us, what is human? What is it to be human? What is the relational nature of humanity? And uh, in what conditions does it make sense to still push forward the experiment of humanity? And in this chapter, we start to see that that emerging is, you know, this community now, is this as it keeps getting shrunk and all the people that she loves and all the people that she cares about leave, she still feels this impulse inside of her to survive, to move towards life. And I I wonder about how many of us would have that, that impulse still intact um, after even as much loss as she's experienced here. So. Very good questions. Yeah. I'm going to think on them myself. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I'm always thinking about this because I'm like, you know, I've, I'm famous for famous amongst my friends. For I'm the one who's like watching the zombie thing. Like, nope, that wouldn't be me. I'd be out at this point. Mm-mm. I would not. I would not be running. Nope. I would just be like, go ahead, eat my intestines because yeah. we're not doing this. <laughs> no, you know. Yeah. I mean, the fear of an awful death is is the only thing that might keep me running. But you know, this the idea of just living in, a, in an environment where there's a zombie at my door and I've got to like 
you know, bash the head of someone that I care about that now is a zombie. I just am like, I don't know if I'm up for it, you know? And I've been watching Lovecraft Country and I'm just, I keep, you know, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's this HBO black spectacular thing. I know. I can't even watch any of it. My daughter was like, no, you can't watch it. She's, <laughs> it's she's too a, much violence. Right? Tashawn tells me, yes. But it's so good and scary and all the things, but I keep having the same moment of, Oh, nope. And that would be the part where Adrian was no longer because I would not be you know, like, I'm just like, I would be peacefully just like, okay, monsters, you can have me. I'm, I'm not gonna, oh, no. I don't think I'm meant to be a human in these conditions. So it's all good. Um, all right. Yeah. So as we head out of this, uh, we wanted to let you know that Octavius Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and Adrian Marie Brown. We are produced by Kat Aaron. Our show art is by Krista Franklin. And our music is <laughs> our music. Uh, <laughs> Always see the stars mm. is by Toshi Regan, and there's a new world coming is written by Bernice Johnson Regan with additional lyrics by Toshi Regan. Of the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower and lead vocals by Shana Small, and I think I want to add um, All of Our Blues, which is written yes. by Toshi Regan and. Um, maybe a little yes it was. Um, yes, please. Might slip up in there. Okay. Oh, I hope That's so. That's also written by Toshi Regan. <laughs> yeah. Toshi be writing. Okay. Um, so you can you know, you be writing. So you can find us on Twitter at O Parables. You can sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash O Parables. And we are doing transcripts for our episodes now. They'll probably each be posted a couple of days after the episode goes up just because of our production schedule and trying to get all the things aligned. Um, but we will we will keep making little updates and posts so that you know when everything is up and ready to go. Um, we are working hard to make sure that this is an accessible podcast in this time. We want everyone to be able to get it. So we love y'all and so be it, see to it. So be it, see to it. <laughs>